tape lives again. ESXi is AWOL. There are some tech news mergers. LG means lots of gigs. Seagate drops the hammer. Google Cloud Exodus incoming. And we're going to take a closer look at Synopsys and their designs on Ansys in this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday, January 17th episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We hope that you're enjoying a nice toasty beverage, perhaps a hot buttered rum, because, yeah, it's hot buttered rum day. Who knew? Uh, my name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I'm not going to be enjoying one of those yet because I want to stay lucid and focused on all the great news that we have, thanks to my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Mr. Tom Hollingsworth, on National Classy Day. So everybody, keep it classy. Yes, you absolutely should, just like the wonderful lineup of news stories that we have coming your way. And we wanted to start off with one of our friends because you should score one for the tape is not dead movement. Much like Paul McCartney, rumors of tape's demise have been greatly exaggerated thanks to new support for archival media from Hammerspace. The Tech Field Day presenter has said that they are adding tape options to their global data environment. This means that users can now store data on a wide variety of media from SSDs all the way to LTO tapes. All of that data appears in their GDE as a single file system. Important to note though, this is not backup tape. This is archival tape. The difference is, is that archival tape has slower access speeds, but all the files are still stored on the tape as files with metadata and not as backup containers. Steven, I have to ask, is Hammerspace gonna make tape cool again? I don't know if they're making tape cool again, but I have to say, I love this product. Um, so, as you said, tape is not dead. Those of us in the storage industry absolutely know that tape is not dead. And frankly, Hammerspace has been doing some really cool stuff. This is the same company that basically has made data available everywhere with their global data environment. Uh, they've partnered with some fine friends, uh, like apparently uh, Vicinity as well as some of the uh, folks in the active archive world, uh, Grout Data, Point Systems, and QSTAR, to deliver basically a new access to tape. So the problem with tape, traditionally, is that once data is on tape, it's kind of not available anymore. The active archive concept was that that data would be at least somewhat available by presenting metadata in some way. And there have been a bunch of different products and announcements over the last decade that have shown that you can integrate tape more actively into your data environment. But the problem is that it was always a different class of data. Essentially, uh, you know, once something is on tape, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. What Hammerspace is doing here is they are basically promoting tape to be an equal uh, storage location with all of the other locations that active data can be. And that means that uh, active applications, whether they're on-premises, in the cloud, remote, can access data through the Hammerspace global file system and, and retrieve that data on demand from basically anything, anywhere. And that's pretty cool. So basically what it means is that tape is no longer sort of that place over there where data just goes. It's, it's actively part of the global data environment. I think this is a great move. Uh, I think it reflects the reality. Frankly, a lot, of, uh, a lot of businesses are still using tape, including some pretty progressive ones. I think if you looked under the covers at some of the big cloud providers, they would be using tape 
uh, because it has tremendous advantages in terms of power efficiency, space efficiency, price, and, and frankly, if you don't need the data now, but yet you want to be able to access it when you do need it, this seems to be a good solution. Honestly, the only thing that I'm wondering and scratching my head about here is where's Spectrologic? Uh, one of the great companies in the space, uh, uh, there's some uh, personnel crossover with, uh, with Hammerspace. I'd love to see Spectra as part of this offering as well because they have some great, great tape products. So Spectra, come to the table. Hammerspace has got something cool here. VMware by Broadcom released a knowledge base article this week announcing end of availability for a whole list of perpetually licensed products, including the basic version of their ESXi hypervisor. This article says that any product that was perpetually licensed previously is no longer available. This means the only way for VMware software going forward is through a subscription-based solution. This follows the other moves that Broadcom has made to turn the virtualization giant into a new revenue stream, which we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Um, Tom, how can the community react to uh, ESXi no longer being available? Well, it, if you read Reddit, the sky is falling. But let's be fair, if you read Reddit for any story, the sky is always falling. I'm having a hard time figuring this one out. I mean, you can go download a trial version of the hypervisor. And that's what I would do to anyone who's like, hey, I just want to spin this up and test it real quick. If it takes you more than 30 days to test something, you probably are not testing it, you're running it. It feels weird to me because everything that's been going on in this whole saga, if you want to call it that for what, the last month, feels very calculated. You know, we're expiring the partner agreements and we're going to renegotiate those. We're expiring any perpetual license stuff so you can't download that stuff anymore. You can't get a hold of it. That feels pretty standard. We say a thing, we do the thing. We're going to create synergies, but we're not going to lay people off. We're going to work more closely with our customers. So that means we're not doing stuff with partners anymore. I understand where Broadcom is coming from, and I know that's probably going to make me the enemy in the tech industry. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying I understand where they're coming from. And the reason for that is because these perpetually licensed products were a resource drag. So think about it like this. You, right now, if you are running ESXi 6, can continue to run ESXi 6 forever. Just like you can run iOS 9 forever or windows 95 forever ah but there's a catch do you want to install that software on something newer do you want to run different devices with it well that's not going to be so easy you know why because you need support and that's where the real money comes from it's not developing the software don't get me wrong development costs a lot but development over time is support adding new functionality, plugging security holes. That's the resource drag. And so I think what Broadcom is effectively saying is, just like every other software company that we've talked about for the last couple of years, if you want to use our software, you really need to be paying us on a regular basis to provide support for it. Just like you can download all of the files to run Red Hat Enterprise Linux for free. But when something breaks, you've got to pay Red Hat to fix it. I think this is just one part of a larger discussion that we're going to have to have about 
what constitutes availability of devices for learning, for trial, for proof of concept. If you're a VMUG member, you're probably asking yourself, well, does this mean my VMUG subscription goes away? No. VMUG has a special deal worked out with Broadcom right now so that you can have software to evangelize VMware to anyone who uses it. But I don't know how long that's going to last because it's going to be one of those things that's going to need to be renegotiated. So at the end of the day, did we really lose anything? No. What we lost was a consumption model that Broadcom has effectively said was going away anyway. It's just they didn't forget to remove the thing they said they were going to take away, as is what happens in tech so often. So we'll stay tuned for this story. Stephen, there's more consolidation in the content industry as Tech Target has agreed to merge with Informa to create a large global platform for tech news and articles. The deal is valued at around $350 million. Informa is going to be giving their Informa tech business for a stake in that combined company, and existing shareholders in Tech Target are going to retain about 43% of that combined company after the deal closes. Now, Stephen, this is not something we normally talk about here on the rundown covering kind of the tech content industry, but what's your scoop on this merger? Yeah, this is an interesting one, mainly because it affects a lot of people in our audience. Many of us have been reading Tech Target and uh, UBM and thus uh, Informa uh, journals for most of our career. Uh, for, for background, uh, UBM was the publisher of journals uh, like Dark Reading, um, Information Week, uh, they produced the Interop conferences, that sort of thing. Well, um, UBM became part of Informa uh, back, I think, in 2018. And Informa is a huge, huge information media and events business. They run things like The Bride Show and Fan Expo and, no kidding, um, Farm Progress, Inside Self-Storage, and the Monaco Yacht Show. So this is, in fact, a very big, global, very diverse uh, company. They also have a tech division that includes things from UBM and other sources, including Information Week and Light Reading and, and uh, Wards, which you may be familiar with in the automobile industry, game developer, that sort of thing. Um, so, so tech was a big focus for Informa. Over time, Tech Target uh, also bought brought in other brands. Um, you know, they started off publishing paper magazines. And full disclosure, I was one of the first people to in be involved with Tech Target when the company was founded back in 1999. And I wrote the back page column for Storage Magazine for Tech Target for 10 years. So these are people that I know, people that I respect. Um, you know, the CEO, I remember him uh, just as a regular guy. Um, and so I, I respect what Tech Target has done over the years. One of the things that they did was they purchased uh, ESG, the Enterprise Strategy Group, which is another uh, long-running and important uh, analyst and uh, advisory group uh, a few years back. And so Tech Target it went public. They've been offering this sort of stuff that, that, as I said, has been affecting our audience for a long time. You've probably interacted with them. You've maybe attended a Tech Target webinar, read their articles on the web, et cetera. So what's happening here is that you've got two giants of the industry and they're sort of trading aspects of their businesses. So Informa is going to contribute uh, cash, their tech brands that I mentioned, and uh, in exchange they're going to take 57% uh, ownership of this new 
TechTarget. TechTarget, for their part, is going to do what the name says. They're going to focus on, you know, tech uh, publications, uh, technology events, that sort of thing. And together, I think that this will make TechTarget a stronger company. Honestly, it's, it's reflective of what's going on overall in the media space. Uh, it makes a lot of sense strategically. I mean, really, if you, if you run like the Bride Expo, do you really need like a dark reading in the same organization? Uh, probably not. And, and so I kind of like what they're doing with this. And I really wish them well, because as I said, uh, these are people that I know, people that I've worked with, and frankly, people that I really respect. Is your washing machine running up your internet bill? It might be if you have a fancy smart washer. In a comical story from last week, a user noticed that their LG smart washer was uh, uploading about 3.6 gigabytes of data on a daily basis. LG says that the machine does download improvements from the washing machine cycle settings regularly, but that seems like an awful lot of improvements, and it seems to be going in the other direction. Uh, an investigation found uh, that the user uh, may have been reporting the amount of data, or uh, the data may have been going in a different direction, and maybe there was something else happening here, like a crypto attack or a botnet. Tom, uh, this is a fun story, but can you clear up what's going on here? Well, I can make it real easy, Stephen. Uh, do you see the small canary that I'm about to put in this coal mine? No, I, I kid. Yes, everybody got a joke out of this. You know, uh, all the washing machine jokes were made. Like, like by Friday, everybody had made them. But more importantly, what needs to be discussed is the canary in the coal mine. Do you know how much data your smart thermostat is using right now, or your light bulb, or your webcam? Would you know where to go to look? Especially if you're not a tech person like me or Steven or most of our audience. The fact that this was noticed was impressive to begin with. But as we saw with Mirai, if you can get access to these things, you can do a lot of damage. I mean, one of the articles that we've, we've linked talks about the fact that Chamberlain devices a couple of years ago were vulnerable to a, a home attack. Now, if you think about it, you've got a massive amount of devices that are connected to the internet for realistically speaking, no good reason. They are almost invisible to the end user. Like I can tell when a system is doing something that it shouldn't be in the background, like running a crypto miner, because everything is sluggish. Your washing machine doesn't have any outward symbols. Maybe the little like tones that it sings are a little more garbled. But other than that, would you know that your washing machine is currently being DDoSed or DDoSing somebody? No, you wouldn't, at least not until you got the bill for your internet usage or something along those lines. I think the bigger problem that we need to think about here is that our home is a giant attack surface. For example, your smart TV, did you connect it to the internet to do an update on it? Ooh, bad move because now it's connected to the internet. Unless you do something creative like block it at the router or the firewall level, which is what this user did to prevent his washing machine from running away, or you craft very specific policies that only allow certain domains to be listed. Like, I don't know, running a pie hole, for example, which is a you know DNS resolver. You're not going to know what those devices are doing. I can tell you from my experience as a networking and security professional way back in the day, I would have to Wireshark monitor ports and get onto the firewall console and look to find infected devices on networks. And that was things that I knew to look for, like NIMDA or um, any one of the, you know, uh, 
code red viruses or whatever. Yeah, I said code red. That's how old I am. But these things today are much more sophisticated, much harder to root out. And because they're targeting devices that we would not normally use in a daily basis from a communications perspective, we may not know that it happens. So yeah, all joking aside, lock down your IoT devices or talk to somebody who can help you understand what you need to put in place to prevent them from doing that. Because there ain't no way that a washing machine needs to upload that much data. That's a lot of dirty laundry to air. Steven, if you've been holding out for some massive storage options in the hard disk drive market, your wait is finally over because after much hinting and teasing, Seagate has announced their enormous Mosaic 3 Plus line of heat-assisted magnetic recording, or hammer, drives. The units can scale up to 30 terabytes per drive with a density of 3 terabytes per drive platter. Current densities for traditional non-heated magnetic media top out at about 16 terabytes per drive. Seagate has stated that these drives are drop-in replacements for existing units, so if you want to run right out and buy one or 10 and drop them into what you're doing right now, boom, more storage. But Stephen, I have to ask, is the storage industry ready for these large single unit drives? And how does Hammer really make this all happen? Well, I think let's start with the technology because we're nerds and it's fun. Um, so uh, one of the things that is challenging in data storage is that as the um, you, you pack more and more density onto a hard disk platter, for example, the uh, each of those little spots, each of those little bits becomes smaller and smaller and smaller, and it becomes harder and harder to target it without messing up the ones around it. Uh, a few years back, uh, most of the hard drive vendors adopted or uh, a, a new technology called shingled magnetic recording. And, and, and as it sounds, um, you know, it, it, it basically uh, overlays a, a bit on another bit in, in a way, physically. And so you are essentially packing more data in, but it means that if you change the one underneath, that it's destructive to the one above. Uh, there's another uh, technology called perpendicular magnetic recording that predates that. Uh, that doesn't overlay them, and it, like it sounds, basically, the, the, they stand on end instead of flat. Um, what, uh, what this uh, new uh, technology does, the heat-assisted uh, technology, is it takes a, uh, a laser and it zaps a little spot on the drive, and that makes it permeable in terms of, um, of, of switching, you know, flipping the bit, which means that you can um, store data there. But because you're using this heat assist and because you can focus that laser very tightly, what it means is you can pack more bits on a platter. So what all this means is that you can have hard drives with more density. You know, as you said, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, three terabyte platters, for example. Uh, put 10 platters in a drive, you get 30 terabytes. Um, six terabyte platters, you get 60 terabytes, you know. There's a lot of things that you can do uh, with this technology and, and that lets us get past uh, what's, I don't want to say been a wall, but certainly a, a steep slope in terms of packing more and more data onto a hard drive. And uh, that's exactly what Seagate is delivering here. So the, this new uh, Exos Mosaic drive um, delivers, you know, is, is in mass production now, apparently. It, uh, they're shipping uh, 30 terabyte drives that are basically drop-in replacements for the previous 16 terabyte drives. And these are going to cloud service providers. I think it's important to recognize, though, that this is the Exos 
line that goes to service providers, not the sort of thing that you yourself would run out and buy at the store. That being said, there is a chance that we'll see this technology show up in consumer drives as well. And, you know, just like Shingle uh, did and just like Perpendicular did. And when that does, we'll have bigger drives. I think it's also important to point out that Western Digital already has uh, 28 terabyte drives using shingled magnetic recording. So it's not like this is a breakthrough in terms of capacity. What it is is a breakthrough in terms of performance though, because um, Hammer ought to perform better than SMR in terms of random access. Now there's other technologies that are gonna have to be brought to bear here too, like multi-actuator or zoned drives and things like that. All of this is to say that hard drives are getting a little bit better and a little bit denser, lowering their cost, lowering their uh, power consumption per bit, and continuing their relevance in the data center. And not only that, but since this technology is shipping, um, I think maybe we can say finally shipping, uh, since we've been looking at this technology for a long time, since it's finally shipping, thank goodness, it means that we can get past some of these limits and we will start looking at 40, 50, 60 terabyte drives in the future. And that's going to be good for people who have incredibly large volumes of data to store and don't want to go to something like tape. But that being said, you know, how exciting is this? This is probably not going to be used uh, by mainstream consumers. It's probably not going to be something that's going to revolutionize the industry. It's going to be something that's going to make uh, everything else that we do a little bit better. And, you know, for that, that's a pretty good story. So, Cheers to Seagate for uh, shipping these. Um, looking forward to seeing some of the other companies shipping these and um, yay storage. Google has decided that moving to another cloud should be free, relatively speaking. They've announced this week that the network egress to another cloud platform will not cost customers any additional fee. Google has reported the reasoning for this is that they want to make it easier for customers to move from one provider to another and allow businesses and governments to scale their technology use. Maybe they're also trying to prod other cloud providers into addressing the egress fees that have been pretty egregious. Tom, uh, why would Google make it free to leave? Well, you have to ask yourself, first of all, let's address the elephant in the room. Everybody's like, oh yeah, the cloud with nobody on it is letting people leave for free. That's not the argument that I would make. Think about this. I'm going to develop an application and it's going to use Kubernetes. Which Kubernetes distribution should I pick? All other things being equal. Wouldn't you develop it on the company that created Kubernetes in the first place? Oh wait, that's Google. But the problem is, is that Google Cloud's tooling eventually hits a limit, whether it's a scaling limitation or there's some feature in AWS or Azure that you really want to use. Well, now I'm stuck. So I've got this thing running in Google Cloud but it's gonna cost me a small fortune to move it to one of the other clouds. Ah, forget it, I'll just shut it off and we'll figure out something later. Rewind the tape. Now, I can develop that application and move it anywhere I want, at least for free to move it. Now, you're still gonna to have to pay storage costs and all that other stuff, but now, the tooling that I use to start the project is tied to Google somehow. So Google may lose a cloud tenant, but they've gained a customer that is relying on Google services. I think it's a smart play, and here's why. If you know that at least at the beginning, the tooling you wanna to use is on Google Cloud, if it isn't gonna cost you anything to move it to AWS or Azure, 
once it's up and running, I'm more likely to start it over there, which means Google gets to say that they're an innovator, but they also get to see the genesis of these projects. So they get to understand what they can do to make their software and their platforms more appealing to that smaller market. And as I said, it gets to tie those applications and those platforms to Google services, which means Google gets to mine more data for whatever it is they do with it. Reportedly selling ads, but who knows? I think it's a smart move. And like you said, egress costs have become, well, egregious because we want lock-in. Yeah, I said it, the L word. We want to keep people here. There's two ways you can do it. You can make them so dependent on your environment that they can't afford to leave, or you can make the exit costs so expensive that they can't afford to leave. That's kind of what we're seeing with Amazon and Azure is, you know, Microsoft's always taken that model of, oh yeah, use all of our tools. And oh yeah, you built this all on our platform. Haha, <laughs> good luck finding this stuff over in the, uh, the other guy's cloud. Amazon's just like, oh yeah, we'll let you put stuff in here for free. You want it to leave? Mm-mm, not a good idea. Like, it, it's actually cheaper to go deploy an outpost at your environment than it is to try to get all your data out of it. I think Google is playing a longer game here. They know, let's be fair, they know they're never going to be number one. And they know number two is going to be a hard stretch. But if they can be a comfortable number three that everybody starts with, that gives them relevance in the industry that can't be matched by anybody else. So I'm gonna pay attention to this. Besides, if you look at the total revenue of what they were making off of the egress costs to get out of Google Cloud versus what they make on your average monthly uh, ad revenue for Google Search Box, it's a rounding error. I think this is a smart move in, the, in by Google. All right, Stephen, we wanted to take a closer look at a big story that was announced late last week. Um, Synopsys has officially agreed to acquire Ansys. You may not have heard of this company, but the value of this deal is $35 billion. That's two Junipers that we just talked about last week. Specializing in electronic design automation tools, Synopsys is integrating Ansys's electronic design analysis and simulation tools. How does this blockbuster acquisition affect the world of chip development and what does it mean for the overall IT industry? Because we talk a lot about chips and design and the future of what those are going to look like here on the rundown. And I think it's interesting to see a couple of companies that we may not have even really seen on our radar spending this much money to do this kind of business. Yeah, this is an interesting area. Um, well, first off, it is an area that affects those of us who are listening to Gestalt IT Rundown and interested in, in tech, uh, enterprise tech, because these are the tools that are used to create the hardware that you use every day. Um, as a bit of background here, electronic design automation is the category here. Um, EDA tools have been around for a long, long time, since the 1970s. Uh, there was a big um, explosion of EDA tools in the 1980s. Uh, full disclosure, my first job out of college was working for an EDA company called ViewLogic that was acquired by Synopsys uh, in 1997, so a long, long time ago. Um, in that time, I got to see just how important these tools are. This is a big market, and it is a valuable market. Essentially, anyone who wants to create an integrated circuit of any sort, a microchip, 
um, is going to use an EDA package, and that EDA package is going to be an expensive piece of software that you bought probably from Synopsys. Or uh, Synopsys has just about 45% of the market, according to uh, IDC, or maybe uh, from Cadence, or maybe from Siemens, which bought Mentor Graphics and has about you know 15% of the market, or maybe something else, including Ansys. But um, basically, you're going to be using one of these products, and, and basically, it's it's like a, it's like a, a digital design tool, PowerPoint for chips. And, but it goes beyond that because essentially what these companies have done over time is they've realized that there's a lot of value in the IP. There's a lot of value in um, accelerating time to market for these companies. Um, essentially, these products are really, really soup to nuts things where, where you can come to it with an idea. If you're a chip designer, you can work and work and work in a collaborative way and you can output something that can then be produced in hardware. The problem as noted by the CEO of Synopsys a few years back, is that Moore's Law is impacting everything, especially chip design. As you've seen, we keep getting tinier and tinier transistors to a decreasing uh, rate of return. So to the point now where Apple is, is reportedly, you know, looking at, uh, you know, uh, two uh, nanometer chips, um, you know, uh, TSMC and Intel and Samsung, you know, they're all fighting to produce smaller and smaller chips, pack more and more onto those. But there's only so much you can pack in there. At the same time, there's a whole trend in the industry that is changing how this all works. And that's called chiplets. Essentially, we're going to have, uh, we already have shipping products where you have not a microchip on a package that you plug into your motherboard, but a number of integrated circuits that all sit on the same package. They sit next to each other and they communicate with a, a bunch of wires or a protocol called UCIE increasingly. And that lets you have more transistors in the system. But one of the, uh, one of the things that, that designers are noticing too is that it, it matters more the, the rest of the system. Because today's CPUs are augmented with accelerators, with GPUs, with IPUs and XPUs and all this. There's a whole world of things. And that's what this is all about. So, uh, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit maybe um, about ANSYS and, and, and how they differ from these EDA companies? Yeah, so what ANSYS is effectively doing is they're simulating all of this uh, design. Now, I remember years ago, we had this wonderful presentation from Dave Zaks at Cisco talking about how difficult it is to design an ASIC, which is effectively a version of a chip. And one of the things that he talked about was, as the complexity of a chip increases and as the process size go down, the uh, yield actually goes down with it. And it's counterintuitive, right? You're like, well, wait a minute, I shrank the, the process size so I should be able to get more out of a silicon wafer, right? Not so much because you now have to deal with imperfections in the silicon, but you also have to deal with the fact that if you screw up at two nanometers, you've ruined everything. Like if I make a little bobble in the, the cut or, you know, one of the things that Dave said was like at 10 nanometers, you actually have to make the building shock isolated because if trucks driving by on the road will cause imperfections in the silicon yield process. Like those little things matter a lot. So I'm going to take this giant sheet of silicon, which is a precious resource, and I'm just going to play around with it and hope that I get some good yields out of it. Mm -mm, no, you're not. So what ANSYS does is they simulate all of this. 
So they say, okay, if we want to do the best thing we can for what this, we're going to run hundreds of simulations and make sure that we have the most efficient way of doing it. You know, this is like simulating dropping an iPhone instead of going out and spending $1,200 on one and then just throwing it off of your roof going, boy, I hope it bounces. And it's a smart move. But when you think about having a company like Synopsys who's doing this EDA, and if they want to simulate that design, they're going to have to send it to a company like Ansys and wait for the results to come back. One, that takes time. And two, there is the possibility that somewhere in that whole chain, something could get dropped or leaked or whatever. And when you're dealing with a company the size of Synopsys, you don't want chip designs leaking out or worse yet, um, you know, finding out that your competitor is moving to a smaller process or that they've bought all of the four nanometer process at TSMC. So by bringing them in house, it makes a whole lot of sense because they gain a division that gives them the ability to design better designs. Because think about a chiplet, right? Like we're, we're way past this whole system on a chip thing. Now we're looking at discrete units that are all packaged under the same die that have differing communications. You've got to make sure all that stuff works together. And you got to make sure that it works together right the first time. You don't want to have to recall a whole bunch of units that break. So ANSYS gives Synopsys the ability to say, we can assure you that these components working together in this package will perform the way you want it to. That is worth $35 billion to a company like Synopsys because it allows them to provide better architecture for their customers and it allows them to reduce the costs of building those units. I think that it's important too the, that this is one of those classic business cases too where the companies are trying to bust beyond their total addressable market. So the EDA market is an interesting one because it's very sticky. Um, you know, essentially once you've committed to using one of these products to develop your next chip, well, you're gonna use that product and you're gonna pay whatever it takes. Um, and you're probably gonna continue to use that product for the next one too, because you know, you get good at it. It's kind of, you know, uh, you use Final Cut, you use, you know, Premiere, you know, what are you gonna, what are you gonna do? You're gonna switch? Um, and, and so I think that that's sort of an aspect of this is that essentially you've got a pie that's expanding, but not expanding rapidly. You've got some dominant players in that in that market, and yet they're all wanting to expand more because these are public companies we're talking about here. I think uh, that you know Synopsys sees an opportunity here to expand their total addressable market by getting way beyond what they've traditionally done, and they're seeing an opportunity here that that allows them to work with companies that, on things, as you say, Tom, that are already happening. Companies are already simulating system performance. They're already simulating, you know, all these other aspects of the system. And it might as well be all part of the same suite because that makes the suite more sticky. It makes the suite more valuable and it increases the size of the market. So we're seeing this happen. To, to If I can translate this to the average Gestalt IT rundown user, why do you care? The answer is you probably don't directly care about this because these are not tools you're going to use on a daily basis unless you work for one of those companies you know, that's developing hardware. On the other hand, you care because all of us need systems that work better, that use less power, that have better cooling, that have you know, all of these benefits that we want. And how you get that is through efficient design, modeling, simulation, 
and that's where this is going. Also, as I said at the top, I think that it really reflects the nature, the changing nature of how chips are being developed. I think it is uh, an embrace of this whole chiplet world. As I said, the, the CEO of Synopsys sees a future where instead of um, worrying about uh, systems on a chip, you're looking at basically a system of chips. And that is all about getting beyond that one chip and simulating the entire system. So this, this whole thing makes a lot of sense for the industry. And I think that it's going to make a lot of things that we use better. But I don't think it's going to affect a lot of us individually. It just reflects really the changes that are happening overall. Yeah, I would agree, Stephen. And ultimately, you know, we wanted to bring you the story because there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes in tech that you may not see immediately. You just, oh, hey, somebody's getting bought for a lot of money. But there has to be a reason behind it, and that's the driver that makes tech go around is, you know, efficiencies and customer uh, overlap. So, you know, Synopsys is getting some of Ansys's customers, and by all reports, you know, it's something like 60 or 70 percent of their customers are going to have an overlap, and that's a high-margin business. So I'm sure that the shareholders of the combined company are going to love this because they get more money. Well, Stephen... We have a lot of things coming up. We have a very packed calendar in the weeks ahead. And you're going to be real busy in just a couple of weeks with a very exciting event. Absolutely. Uh, Cloud Field Day is returning. Uh, we're excited to get a group of a dozen delegates, um, every one of them in person, in uh, California for Silicon Valley for this uh, Cloud Field Day event that's coming up. Uh, I've been spending some time with the companies, preparing them, helping them understand you know, how to present and what field day looks like. And we're very excited to see companies like Dell Technologies coming in there, uh, Broadcom, uh, Platform 9, Neuroblade. Uh, we've got another one in our back pocket that we're probably going to announce here soon. We're also going to be doing uh, recording episodes of the uh, on-premise IT podcast, as well as, of course, uh, relaunching our next season of Utilizing Tech focused on AI. So, uh, so much stuff going on. Um, tune in at techfieldday.com to learn more. Stephen, I wish Weird Stuff Warehouse was still open because I need a teletype because we have breaking news that IP Fabric will be presenting at Tech Field Day Extra at Cisco Live in Maya the first week of February. I am so ready to go to Amsterdam and see people riding bikes, try not to get run over by bikes, but to hear about all the great stuff that our friends at IP Fabric have been working on. And they'll be coming along with some great Cisco content as well. We'll try to make sure that you're getting the videos as quickly as possible because our schedule means that you're probably going to have to stay up till the wee hours of the morning. So you night owls, you and I are now best friends. But for everybody else, we'll be posting those videos to our YouTube channel uh, as soon as we get them edited down and, and ready for you to pay attention to. And Stephen, right after that, we have an AI event that everyone wants to go watch. Yeah, can I get another uh, teletype sound, Tom, please? Did, give me a teletype. It's officially official. Intel is a leading presenter at AI Field Day uh, in the middle of February. Uh, Intel uh, is sponsoring a, a whole day of presentations with partners. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, we're looking at companies like Google Cloud coming in, uh, Dell Technologies, um, hopefully uh, more than that as well. Uh, we're also very excited to have companies like VMware presenting at uh, AI Field Day. Um, we're going to be having some of these names that we've mentioned here in the, in the storage space. Uh, Solidime's going to be there. 
And, and as I said, this is the relaunch of our AI-focused season of Utilizing Tech. So check out utilizingtech.com and subscribe because we're going to be launching that in early in February and uh, we're going to have a whole season focused on what's going on in the AI space. And right after that, as we mentioned before, we have Networking Field Day 34. I am going to have a pile of networking folks who will be joining me in Silicon Valley for this one. We just added them to the website and bought them all plane tickets, so it's going to be a big party. And we've got some great companies, got a couple more in waiting in the wings. We just got to get the paperwork back and we'll be adding them to the website very shortly. So you're definitely going to want to pay attention for that one. But it's going to be a fun ride. Networking is still hot. And I think that there's a lot more to say in the space. Absolutely. And one more thing I'll point out, um, in coordination with the Futurum group, we're reserving a seat at the table for Futurum analysts at every of our one of our field day events. We're also inviting in a bunch of new people as well. Um, we've got some pretty exciting names coming on. So check out the Tech Field Day website and, um, and, and you'll see this thing is kind of uh, expanding. And um, I can't wait to hear what these people have to say and what their perspectives are. Absolutely. And if you can't wait to hear what we have to say, you don't have to wait long because we'll be back next week with more great news stories. I'm sure that somebody is going to buy somebody else or something's going to get hacked or, you know, a piece of hardware is going to get released. Um, unfortunately, Stephen and I will not be reviewing the Vision Pro on launch day because, well, yeah. But if you want to watch one? us on your Vision Pro, well, you... I, I spent all my money acquiring Ansys this week, Stephen. I don't have any money left over for a Vision Pro. But if you want to watch us on your Vision Pro or anywhere else, just go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash video. We have a new video up for the rundown around 12.30 Eastern time every week. Uh, if you want to listen to us in your fancy headphones, uh, that would be our podcast feed. Just look for Gestalt IT Rundown. We always publish the show notes on the website so you can see the articles that we link to. You can see our take on things. Um, maybe see if you can pick out the Easter eggs and the jokes in our little reads. Um, I love putting some of those in there just to see who's paying attention. And I hope that you continue to pay attention to us for the rundown and all the other great things that we do at Gestalt IT. Make sure you check out gestaltit.com. We've got some great articles that have been published by our staff writer recently. She is kicking butt and we're super proud of Shalagna for all the hard work that she does. We're also proud of all the other people who are a great part of what we do here. Yes, even Steven, I'm really proud of him because let's be fair, who can explain hammer in a hard drive and not crack up a little bit? Steven, you kept a straight face. Don't we'll hurt him. Don't hurt him, Tom. <laughs> we'll be back next week because we're too legit to quit, and uh, I've run out of things to say about MC Hammer. So until next week, stay safe, stay warm, take care, but not too warm because you might heat up your hard drive too much and lose some data. Until then, we'll be back with more great episodes, more great news. Stay tuned. <laughs>